On the morning of September 26, 1957, a pair of petite women's shoes was found outside of a stately Victorian home overlooking the bridges of the Old Canal in Joliet, Illinois. One shoe was placed on the trunk of a black 1955 Chrysler, and the other was toppled onto the frosty grass. These shoes were the last trace of Molly Zelko. A tough-as-nails newspaper editor, Molly was a crusader against the gambling rackets of local organized crime figures aligned with corrupt politicians and dishonest businessmen. In the city of Joliet, her list of enemies was long, but Molly may have finally made a more powerful enemy. Robert F. Kennedy searched for her. J. Edgar Hoover requested weekly updates about her. Sam Giancana may have feared her. What about Molly Zelko obsessed these powerful men? Was it possible they knew more about her than they claimed? Sixty years later, the question remains. Who killed Molly Zelko? Chances are... If the city ever wises up, well, there's going to be a lot of hell popping. Well, who's going to tell him unless you run down there and tell him? Okay, Mr. Whiteside, I'm going to be asking you some questions. Okay? There were two dominant questions. Who was Molly Zelko? And of course, where is Molly Zelko and what happened to her? She was like a bulldog. When she had something to report, she didn't let it go. Around back then, you remember this Molly Zelko story? And he turned white. He says, I think I see her. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. My name is Greg Pierbolt. Since 2013, I've served as the director of the Joliet Area Historical Museum. Located 40 miles southwest of Chicago, Joliet was named for the explorer Louis Joliet, who paddled down the Des Plaines River with his companion, Father Jacques Marquette. Legend held a massive limestone mound overlooked a large bend in the river in what is now downtown Joliet, and presumably which the explorer saw fit to name for himself. A few centuries later, as the last of the native tribes were removed from the area, the construction of the Illinois and Michigan Canal connected the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River, and the first wave of European immigrants came to the area. The INM is today known as the Illinois Waterway, or simply the canal, by the locals. Seven drawbridges span the canal, opening day and night to allow barge traffic to meander through, and towering over downtown when they do. In fact, getting caught by the bridges is an acceptable reason for arriving late almost anywhere in Joliet. The canal's heyday didn't last long. Railroad lines crisscrossed downtown almost as soon as the canal was finished. Steel mills, stone quarries, and every manner of factories, mills, and workshops were established in Joliet. It literally and figuratively helped to build the Great West. Each day, dozens of smokestacks and steam engines produced a continuous haze which languished over the city. In the face of this grit, Joliet was also able to produce equally beautiful public spaces with colorful stories. Its elegant Union Station still rises above downtown, intersecting two elevated railroads. 
Al Capone was arrested here in 1927 for gun-toting as he attempted to elude Chicago authorities. As legend holds, it's the only time he was ever taken by authorities at gunpoint. A half dozen buildings by the firm of the White City architect Daniel Burnham still stand. The Rialto Square Theater, built at the exact moment that Vaudeville met the talkies, was modeled after the Palace of Versailles and was just as over the top. Upon seeing it for the first time, Liberace later declared, Finally, a theater to match my wardrobe. The Rialto was built in 1926 on Chicago Street, later that year to be designated Federal Highway 66. Even if you haven't heard these stories, it's very likely you have heard of Joliet. You'd better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's Office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission. Since 1858, Joliet has been home to the Illinois State Penitentiary, and the city's name has become synonymous with the prison. Perhaps nothing reinforced this more than the iconic 1980 film, The Blues Brothers, where the mission of Joliet Jake begins and, spoiler alert, ends at the castellated Gothic limestone Joliet prison. In a city rich with reputation, steeped in history and lore, filled with glamour and grit, there was no shortage of topics to discuss at the museum when I arrived. However, there was one name that kept coming up shortly after my arrival in Joliet, which I'd never heard of. Locals would tell me with a knowing smile that the museum should do an exhibit on Molly Zelko. Maybe we could find her, or at least her shoes. But if we did talk about Molly, we should be careful. Of course, my first question was, who is Molly Zelko? Who is Molly Zelko? It is you would think would be perhaps easy to answer and simple, but it's as complicated as about everything in this story. You could sum it up, uh, and after talking to over 100 people, friends, family, people that uh, actually knew her, people that worked with her, it, it came down to two words. Molly was a saint, or Molly was a bitch. That's Lonnie Kane. If you search for the Molly Zelko case on the internet, one of the few names you will find still investigating this story is his. He's perhaps the greatest living authority on the case. More people went the saint route than the bitch route. Um, Molly was labeled a crusading uh, investigative reporter, a strong editor, um, very determined, focused woman. Uh, So she uh, grew in strength and power in the 50s. Not a time when women uh, did much more than secretarial work. In fact, for a long time, she was listed as a secretary. And she she was very determined to put out a quality product, and she wanted complete control over the product, Uh, the product being uh, the weekly newspaper called The Spectator. Lonnie is a newspaper man. He recently retired as managing editor of the Ottawa, Illinois Times, and has worked as a print journalist for his entire career. In 1978, as a fresh reporter for the Joliet Herald News, he was approached by fellow reporter John Whiteside to help write a feature story on the Molly Zelko disappearance, at that time a 20-year-old cold case. We'll talk more about Whiteside's role later in this series, as his connection to the case is crucial. The timing of this is, is part of the fascination that we had with the story. Um, but bigger picture, she disappeared on September 25th, 1957. The headlines for that day that she disappeared were two U.S. fighters collided over the North Atlantic. Jimmy Hoffa, 
who was the vice president of the Teamsters at the time, was indicted for perjury. These were stories the day she disappeared. The nation was watching as nine black students entered a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, under guard by U.S. troops. Um, locally, there was a story about vandals who broke in and damaged Mary Crest School that Wednesday night that she disappeared. Uh, there were 350 employees at Phoenix Manufacturing on Industry Avenue that had staged an unauthorized walkout. Um, and U.S. agents had seized several pinball machines in Raisin, Peoria, Bloomington, and Collinsville. That's what the, was going on in the 50s locally uh, in uh, Joliet. Lonnie agreed to help investigate what was supposed to be a single feature story. However, when the two reporters began investigating Molly Zelko, they weren't quite prepared for the response they received. In 78, everybody had a Molly story uh, and theories, uh, and it was, it was just a fascinating story. She was a fascinating woman, and she was a newspaper woman. So we had a, a, a kind of an obvious biased interest uh, in uh, what happened to her uh, and her role uh, in the community as a newspaper woman. This series that ran in 1978 ran for two weeks straight, every day. And that's just kind of unheard of in the newspaper world. I mean, you know, you want to run a series, if it runs a week, that's long. It tends to be two days, three days, maybe four, but a series of articles generally doesn't run that long in a newspaper. Uh, but there was just so much. And that was 1978. Um, that series started running on a Sunday. And from the moment it hit the sidewalks on that Sunday in the porches, there were calls, and we had set up a, we had set up a, a, a mailbox at the newspaper and a phone line for people to call in, and they did. Everybody we talked to, and I don't say that loosely, but everybody, including some family members, Zelko family members, everybody we talked to were they were nervous, afraid. A lot of people um, didn't want to let us use their name. So that fear factor, which of course uh, kind of got under our skin too as reporters, we, you know, there were times that we were a little nervous about it. Um, but I think that fear factor is something that it probably was something that existed and was dominant in the 50s also in Joliet. Uh, you, you were careful about uh, who you messed with and what you said. So what was there to be afraid of in Joliet for someone as courageous as Molly Zelko during the 1950s? Why would she need to be careful about what she said? I found that the answer to this was surprising, to say the least. Pinball. Big word. Is it really possible that Molly could have been murdered over pinball machines? It turns out that's a solid theory. Following the repeal of prohibition, organized crime lost its main source of revenue, bootlegging. Like any resourceful company, the mob had to come up with new ways to earn money. The gambling rackets, which included coin-operated devices like pinball machines and jukeboxes, replaced the lost revenue from illegal alcohol. Organized gambling was even referred to as the new booze by members of the outfit, while federal authorities like FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover referred to it as a vicious evil. The Senate Crime Investigation Committee shifts its operations to Washington where Attorney General J. Howard McGrath is among the witnesses. He urgently recommends new legislation to curb interstate gambling information. 
He is followed to the stand by J. Edgar Hoover, chief of the FBI, who makes an eloquent plea for stronger law enforcement at the local level, where he says the real evil lies. The gambling problem must be viewed as a phase of the entire crime picture. Organized gambling, gambling is a vicious evil. It corrupts our youth and blights the lives of our adults. It becomes a springboard for other crimes, embezzlement, robbery, and even murder. But like any other type of crime, it can be controlled. If the laws against gambling presently in the, on the state and local statute books were earnestly and vigorously enforced, organized gambling could be eliminated, could be eliminated within 48 hours in any community in this land. No criminal, the gambler, and his allies included, can long stand up before a determined, intelligent, and informed public opinion. That, in my opinion, is the basic answer to the gambling problem, an aroused public opinion, which will act on a local level through local law enforcement authorities. There was this war going on over who was going to control the pinballs and the jukebox amusement business. But there was also an extension of that war on the city council. They were going back and forth through the 50s as to whether or not to legalize uh, pinball machines. This was a huge issue. Uh, the short summary of that is that uh, in, the, in 1940, uh, the Joliet City Council had made pinball machines illegal. They said they were illegal. Um, in 1948, there were a series of murders and bombings that drove independent jukebox operators uh, from Well County. In uh, 1953, Illinois passed a law that legalized pinball machines. So the, the issue went back and forth between uh, anti-gambling voices and those that uh, were okay with pinball machines on the city council. Now, um, on August 5th, uh, 1957, this would have been uh, the month before Molly disappeared, the city council finally passed an ordinance four to three uh, that banned pinball machines. And the reason that it finally passed on the city council is because Molly and the spectator uh, worked very hard to, to try and get anti-gambling voices uh, on the city council. It was supposed to go into effect January 1st, 1958. Molly never got to see that. Despite lingering questions about her true motivation for this rampant opposition to pinball machines and other gambling rackets, one thing was clear. Molly was not afraid to use the spectator as a weapon. Sixty years later, stories are still remembered of Molly's unflinching capacity to do what it took to keep the newspaper going. There's um, one story that uh, was told by a, a person that worked for the spectator about how Molly knew something about a local uh, bar owner uh, and uh, the bar was uh, with, within a certain distance of a local school and, and that distance, according to city ordinance, it was too close. It was a tavern too close to a school. Uh, and uh, Molly had told this guy, I want you to go down and get a full page ad from this guy. And uh, the guy says, well, why should he buy a full page ad? And she said, just go, he'll, he'll, he'll buy it. And when he got there, the, the guy says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a full page ad. And uh, the ad rep said, uh, can I ask why you're doing this? And he says, it's because 
Molly said, if I don't, there'll be a front page story about how my bar is too close to the school. Uh, now, th those are people that said Molly had that bitchy uh, edge. Um, uh, although I think she was she was driven to make the newspaper a success, and I and I think it probably did take drive to, for the newspaper to succeed. As it turns out, other stories of Molly's bitchiness, as her enemies described it, were not so lighthearted. Shaking down a vendor for an advertisement was only the beginning of the lengths she would go to to fight what she viewed as corruption in the city of Joliet. Hello. Hello, I was calling. Uh, Mr. stepped out for about a half hour. Could I have him call you back? Uh, yes, please. Oh, Mr. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. He said if you called back to tell you that he'd be back in about a half hour. All right. So I'll have him call you. Thank you. In 1955, Molly secretly and illegally wiretapped the phones of a Joliet construction company whom she suspected of bid rigging. Like they are today, publicly funded projects like road building or the construction of a storm sewer were put to a public bid. The contract was naturally awarded to the company who provided the lowest price. However, if local construction companies were to collude with one another, knowing what the others would bid, they could effectively control who was awarded these projects. As Molly's wiretap revealed, this was apparently an active practice in the 1950s. Amazingly, this secret tape still exists. Listen as a contractor new to Joliet receives an offer from one of his more seasoned competitors. Hello. As the older contractor explains, while illegal, his motivations are presented as pure. Small, local firms banding together to make sure projects like the disposal plant that is being discussed on the tape are protected from resources of the big guys, who could do the job for less money. However, the younger man remains hesitant. If the city ever wises up, there's going to be a lot of hell popping. Well, who's going to tell him unless you run down there and tell him? Nobody else tells him. Well, I don't think it's worthwhile to tell him to beat anything. No, I don't tell him anything anyhow. All I go and ask him some questions, and uh, if we haven't got <laughs> enough etiquette among ourselves to keep this a secret, well, uh, you get any answers? <laughs> uh, in the course of the conversation, and tacitly encouraging the new contractor to stick together with his Joliet peers, the older contractor explains that not only was bid rigging commonplace in the industry, but that firms who meddled in projects outside of their own communities could be subject to retaliation by those firms who'd lost out on the jobs. I'm going to Springfield Thursday, 
And uh, sometimes a stranger comes out, a guy comes from Chicago, or Aurora or, or someplace else, and knocks the thing off. Well, then we're going to have to go over to Aurora and spoil the thing over to Aurora, then me and you. That's the way we do it. Yeah. And make the man in Aurora stay where he belongs. Yeah. Now, the guy from Melrose Park come down, the only reason he come down, because Porter and Walter Oil Company had a proposal on Tinley Park. Got and he wanted Tinley Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why he'd come in there, so he spoiled it for everybody else. Nobody else could... He'd already put his bid in. Yeah. But the, uh, if uh, would have kept their bid out of uh, out of Tinley Park, the guy wouldn't even been in here. Yeah. But he was in there protecting himself. Yeah. And I don't blame him for that. That's the way we do it. Yeah. The conversation concludes with the younger contractor sticking to his guns and refusing to rig the bid even while being ridiculed by the elder. We should say, for the record, there's no evidence that suggests anyone on this tape might be a suspect in Molly's disappearance. But it does show that her drive to shed light on these illegal activities, even though this very wiretap was illegal, would have earned her a number of enemies in Joliet, many of whom were well-placed. At the very least, someone who was personally or professionally harmed by Molly's constant crusading through the spectator would likely be ambivalent about her disappearance. As the new contractor learned, whether he liked it or not, his business was connected to a larger web. The lines between business, politics, and crime were just much more blurry in this period. Well, I don't know. Uh, looks to me like public stuff ought to be open bids. And uh, I don't yeah, know. You're the only one in the state of Illinois probably thinks that way. Well, I sometimes wonder if that's in the box, right? <laughs> huh? I sometimes think that's probably right. I don't know what I guess do. I'll think about it. Everybody everybody else does it. Yeah. Well, I'll think it over. I don't know what uh what the hookup is. Well I've explained it to you. Yeah. Well uh there's no no reason why we couldn't. We could get a good price for it and the next time well you could get a good price and uh all you do is make money, the money's there. Yeah. And uh uh, nobody gives you any rebate on anything that you pay for when you pay out, when you go pay your taxes or anything, or a lot of these different associations, nobody pays you anything back. No, they never have yet. Maybe well, uh, they're saving it. This is the only way to do it. Everybody else does it that way. We've done it that way ever since I've been in business. Well, you go ahead and bid. I'm not going to, well, I'll bid, but I'm not going to bid very close because I've got work right now. Because it was obtained illegally, this tape was not admissible as evidence in any legal action. However, there was fallout during this period in dealings between city officials and public projects. Mayor Arthur Yanaki was indicted by the federal government for receiving $30,000 in kickbacks from various public projects during this period, such as parking meter installation and sewer construction. Like they did with Al Capone, the federal government indicted Yanaki for refusing to claim this income on his taxes. The former mayor was found guilty and ultimately sentenced to one year of probation five months to the day before Molly disappeared. A furious Molly wrote in The Spectator that she felt the lenient punishment was the equivalent of 10 lashes with a piece of macaroni, whatever that means. The recording became a subject of intrigue after Molly's disappearance, described as a mysterious secret tape. It was reported in the Chicago Tribune that Molly handed the tape off to a friend who worked at local radio station WJOL two years before she vanished. Salaciously, the Tribune stated she gave the recording to this mystery man for safekeeping in the event that something should happen to her. 
The friend contacted police about the tape after being scared of an uncompleted phone call he received just after Molly disappeared. This was far from Molly's only sign she said she would give if something happened to her. There was one sign in particular that has come to define the story. I asked Lynn Lichtenauer to talk about this. Lynn has spent most of her life in Joliet and is one of its most well-known citizens through her work with seemingly every civic and charitable organization in the city. Like Lonnie, she also worked in the newspaper business and has a unique kinship to Molly. Lynn was her successor at The Spectator. What is the mystique about those shoes, you think? Because everyone, that's another thing that you immediately heard when you'd ask who was Molly Zelko. Within 10 seconds, you hear the shoes. Well, yeah, because the shoes were all part of this original story. When she disappeared and she had told uh, that she, if, if, they, if they got her, if they got her, she would kick off her shoes. So you knew that she didn't just disappear. They got her. So they're the that so that's the mystery of those and to look at them and think that they were there she wore them on her feet when she left the spectator when she drove up to her house and she did what she said she was going to do those are her shoes it's kind of chilling <laughs> oh it's kind of it is kind of chilling we'll hear much more from Lynn about life at the spectator and in Joliet as our story progresses it's very possible the Molly Zelko case might not be known at all if it weren't for her. Now, back to Lonnie and the shoes. The shoes. It's such a strong thread throughout this thing. I mean, just, she was setting up the whole thing by saying, if they get me, I'll kick off my shoes. And there are the shoes. And Joe Trisna keeps the shoes. And we take the shoes to psychics and took us off on side trails we probably shouldn't have gone on. But because we were involved in the psychics, who uh, one of the psychics took us to Stryker Avenue and led us to uh, witness on Stryker Avenue and... Uh, now, I don't know, it just seems like the shoes are what's what's truly left of Molly. They're, uh, they're a symbol of Molly. Uh, you, you look at them and think, talk to me, shoes, talk to me. <laughs> talk to me. Talk to me. Next time on The Spectator, we go back in time to introduce Bill McCabe, the publisher of the newspaper. As Molly's boss, mentor, and confidant, some say her real crusade and her disappearance was the result of her relationship with McCabe. He woke up from a, a dream that he had, a nightmare, that he said he would never forget, and he told reporters this. In that dream, that nightmare, he said he was covered in blood in his mother's arms. Uh, and then the next night, uh, he is covered in blood. He was beaten up with, a, described a club that had like spikes in it from the boys from Detroit. You know, the boys. <laughs> That's what it said. Her editorial standpoint, her, her friends, her enemies, they were all Bill's. Her viewpoint was Bill's viewpoint. Her friends were Bill's friends. Her enemies were Bill's enemies. He was her boss, her mentor, father figure, big brother figure, business partner. Um, I think they may have been lovers. Possible. Talk to me. Talk to me. The Spectator is produced by the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. Production and principal narration was done by me, Craig Pierbolt. 
Co-production, additional recording, and editing was done by Joey Lieberman. Principal interviews and digitalization was facilitated by Keith Folk at the library's digital media studio. Special thanks to our guests, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta, as well as Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library. 